Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today we're going to take a look at some of the major crises going on around the world and what the role of the United Nations is in helping to alleviate some of these problems. My guest is an expert on these topics. Mr. Steve Schlesinger is a fellow at the Century Foundation in New York City. Mr. Schlesinger authored Active Creation, Founding of the United Nations. Steve Schlesinger, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. We could do we could do a show every week. There's so many hotspots around the world. I mean, my goodness, just to try to keep up with them. But Steve, I appreciate you doing this. Yeah, you wrote a very interesting book. It's just a remarkable book, Active Creation, Founding of the United Nations. Just very briefly, in a few sentences, how has the UN changed from its mandate in 1945, coming out of World War II, to where we are today? dealing with regional conflicts, dealing with diseases that we'd never heard of, dealing with climate change and that type of thing? Well, you know, the UN started out as primarily a security body because it had, we, civilization had gone through two great world wars, First World War and Second World War, which killed 90 million people or so. So the idea of the UN was to prevent a third world war. And in doing so, the, uh, the UN security body was set up, the General Assembly, to bring all the states of, 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 of the world together, all in a way to ramp down the outbreak of violence. Nonetheless, the UN realized there were a lot of other issues that create peace in the world. Environmental de de degradation is terrible. Loss of water rights, the issue of health, all these kind of uh, divisive issues required the UN to actually broaden its mandate. So you have now UN agencies, which are spun off in different directions, dealing with refugees and health and, and uh, you know, uh, transportation and so on. And so in that sense, the UN is re being reactive to the world's issues of today and therefore has enormously expanded its preview purview around the, around the globe. Mm -hmm. And these issues were not even in anyone's minds back in 1945. It's the world has changed quite dramatically. And if our viewers would like, if they'd like more information on some of your articles and many of these other topics that we won't get to today, they can go to www.stevenslesinger.com to tap into some of these. Well, there's so many crises we could deal with, but the big one right now has to be Ukraine with the Russian invasion. And of course, what we say today will be history tomorrow and may be totally changed by the weekend. So by the time this show comes out, but as you view this situation, what role can the United Nations play or certainly is playing at this juncture to help alleviate this illegal invasion of Russia into a sovereign Ukraine? Well, you know, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine displays both the strengths and weaknesses of the UN. Obviously, the, the strengths are that the UN can rivet a world of opinion by focusing all the states of the, of the globe 
in a single forum, namely the UN General Assembly and the UN Security Council about how to deal with this aggressive action by the, the, by the Russian state in, into a democratic country like Ukraine. Uh, that is the strength. It, it brings together the world opinion around a single dramatic issue. The, the weakness is that the UN actually doesn't have military forces, doesn't have taxing ability, doesn't have uh, the strengths of a, of a um, you know, unified uh, global system to bring bare uh, energy and, and defense to these kind of actions. The best it can do is go to the UN Security Council and issue resolutions or edicts to stop these uh, outbreaks of, of, of violence. And as it is, the UN Security Council did vote the other day about uh, upholding Ukraine's sovereignty, but with the five countries that have the veto power include Russia, and Russia simply vetoed and the resolution that came out of the Security Council, uh, which would have been a way of defending that poor country against this uh, invasion. And once that happened, the UN was helpless. It couldn't really do anything beyond issuing what is uh, obviously the um, expression of world outrage over what, what had happened. And now it is possible that the issue could be kicked over to the General Assembly. And that, that's still a, a further uh, venture that could happen in which all 193 countries could actually be represented rather than just the 15 countries on the Security Council. We'll have to see how that plays out. Mm -hmm. And of course, it seems like there are so many UN agencies. Luckily, the UN does have a lot of specialized agencies that can provide assistance, especially to refugees who are leaving Ukraine or maybe leaving even more so in the future with the uh, with the UN Refugee Agency, with the UNICEF, the UN Children's Fund, with different ones like that can be of assistance, even though the Security Council will never pass a resolution against Russia because, as you said, Russia can veto it. So the UN does have a broad system there that can be of some assistance. Yeah, there's no question that the UN has other resources that can be helpful in these kind of uh, calamitous uh, situations. But the problem is that even then, there has to be a certain amount of negotiation and deliberation that goes on between the warring states to allow the UN to come in and uh, provide those resources. So that will be part of the ongoing struggle that we see in the coming months in not only Ukraine, but throughout Europe. Brought up an inter interesting issue, well, several interesting issues, but one in particular was that the United Nations doesn't have the capacity to levy taxes, to raise its own funds, to support an army. And of course, that really derails the arguments of a lot of people out there who one don't understand the UN or two don't like the UN for whatever reason that the UN is trying to become a one world government which it's certainly not uh, you just talk to the 193 ambassadors permanent reps at the UN and they'll certainly put that uh, myth or dispel it very quickly but it goes back also to how we deal with the United Nations and uh, how has uh, uh, drawing a contrast how has President Biden dealt with the United Nations and UN agencies in relation to how President Trump did it or even President Obama? Well, I think it's very clear that the difference between Trump and Biden is, is, is quite dramatic. Uh, Trump had the notion that 
he had a policy called the American First policy, which meant that the U.S. should be able to do anything it wanted around the globe without having to consult with any international body, much less uh, allies or any other or organizations. And therefore, his attitude towards the UN was dismissive. He would use the UN, UN for his own limited purposes, for example, enforcing sanctions on a rogue state like North Korea. But otherwise, he could give less of a damn about it. And uh, frankly, the, the uh, Biden approach is more in li line with his own party's approach towards uh, international relations, which is multilateralism, a belief that you have to have a community all together acting on as one in order to solve problems. Therefore, he is, for example, he rejoined the Paris Peace Accord on climate change. He, he's uh, rejoined the World Health Organization. He, in, in the UN itself, he's, he's had the, our government go back to the Human Rights Council. Um, all these different agencies, which in one way or the other, um, Trump withdrew from because of that American first policy. So Biden has very much changed the attitude of this country towards the rest of the world in a way he wants to embrace the world. Trump wanted to withdraw from the world and, and, and act on, on a unilateral basis. Uh, Trump just, uh, Biden just as different, the very different kind of personality, kind of attitude towards the whole uh, earth itself. And therefore everything has changed in, in some, insofar as our, particularly in, insofar as our relationship with the United Nations. Mm -hmm. And as you think back over so many of the issues that, uh, well, he had, uh, one that is coming back online now, it looks like they're going to finally crack an agreement, was the Iranian nuclear deal. This was an Iran, it was a nuclear arrangement between the permanent five members of the Security Council plus Germany and the European Union and a few other folks involved to really make sure that Iran did not develop the capacity to develop nuclear weapons. And that treaty was working and was working fairly well. And I didn't cover all the issues, the problems people had with Iran. That, that's a separate issue. But for its one goal, it actually was successful. And then President Trump thought that he would toss it out. And he said he was going to come back with stricter measures, which totally failed. They just did not work whatsoever. But it looks like that the, we're going to come to an agreement on that. How important is that agreement? I think it's seriously important. And I'll tell you why. Because the one incredible danger in the, in the tinderbox of the Middle East is that Iran gets nuclear weapons. And if that happens, Saudi Arabia may try to get nuclear weapons, uh, Egypt, uh, Jordan, all the different countries in that region will feel that they have to arm themselves with the nuclear capacities in order to ward off the dangers or, of, of, of an Iranian nuclear armed country. Uh, and we all know that the Middle East is complicated enough. It's been enough there's been enough bloodshed in, in, in that area over the last couple of decades to put on top of that nuclear weapons. You're talking about, you know, practically the end days for, uh, for that whole civilized area, civilized the area which was the, you know, the beginnings of civilization. And I think that it's, so it's criti critical that we uh, convince Iran to not develop a nuclear weapon. It doesn't mean we're gonna be able to circumvent 
Iran's involvement, involvement in terrorism, they simply will not deal with us on that issue, but they will deal with us on the nuclear side simply because our sanctions on Iran are so you know, dramatic, so strong, and, and have, have crippled their economy so badly that they're very, very much willing to consider a deal returning to the old Obama uh, agreement on nuclear weaponry. Mm. That is disarming. Exactly, exactly. And the, they, they really need to do that because it was ironic during, back when this whole debate was going on, I remember Bibi Netanyahu, who was then the leader of Israel, was totally opposed to the Iranian nuclear deal. But come to find out later that a lot of his folks who worked in his government, military leaders in Israel were not. They thought this was great and we needed it. And they came out and supported it later. But a lot of people felt that the next step, if this failed and Iran did develop nuclear weapons, the next step was war. And that could be the end of Israel. That could be the end of a lot of countries, or it could be nuclear armament time for the Saudi Arabia or whomever. So it's, it is certainly a very important issue. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you have a podcast, or you just have a computer, and you like our shows and you'd like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're taking a look at a couple of the hotspots around the world, some of the major crisis points, and looking at the role of the United Nations in helping to diffuse these crises. My guest is an expert on this topic. Mr. Steve Schlesinger is a fellow at the Century Foundation in New York City. Mr. Schlesinger authored Act of Creation, Founding of the United Nations. Steve, we're talking about a variety of issues and a variety of topics. And of course, a large part of the success of any organization with the United Nations in particular depends upon first off the leadership and the current Secretary General of the United Nations is Antonio Guterres, who is into his second five-year term. But it also depends upon the involvement of the at least major players, the major countries or states at the United Nations with 193 of them. What role are, are they playing in general? How, first off, how do you view Antonio Guterres' leadership at this point? And what role could or should countries like uh, the US, France, Germany, all of them play at the UN in helping to carry out the programs and the goals? Well, I think the, the uh, you know, Antonio Guterres has just been reelected for a second five-year term. His first five-year term, I think, ha had a mixed record. Um, uh, he, he was very powerful on the issue of climate control. He and the UN sponsored the meeting in Glasgow last year on, on the issue of making sure that we, as a, as a world, focus very uh, powerfully on how to deal with the issue of uh, of, uh, of uh, Earth, which is warming out of control to the point it's going to wreck the economies of practically every country 
on the planet. And I think he is very well identified with that issue. Uh, on the other hand, uh, he's not really been involved in the issue of human rights. In fact, he's sort of disowned involvement in that uh, to the point that he's sloughed all the issues of human rights off to the Human Rights Council, which of course is the uh, body that normally the UN, uh, where the UN addresses those, those uh, particular matters. But as a leader, as a General Assembly of, of the largest world security uh, organization, it is on, incumbent on the security the secretary general to help raise these issues of human rights violations in order to sway public opinion for and against countries that either violate them or uphold them. And I, I'm a little disappointed that he didn't do more in that first five years. Now, in the second five years, uh, I think he will probably feel more free about addressing human rights because he's not gonna be seeking reelection and therefore he won't require the uh, unanimous support of the five veto no uh, nations, Russia, China, the United States, United Kingdom and France, uh, any, any one of which could have vetoed his reelection. But once he's no longer tethered to them, he can speak out more emphatically on these kind of matters. And in fact, on the uh, issue that we are talking about right now, which topically through our last couple of days, the invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia, he has actually been outspoken against Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, and uttered the famous words, let, let, let us have peace given a chance, uh, the old uh, John Lennon line. Um, and I think that is gonna be uh, probably a token or at least a reflection of his feeling more free to be outspoken about the issues that are really very much part of the value system of the United Nations. Had it not been for the really strong, powerful leadership role of going back really to Secretary General Kofi Annan, to Ban Ki-moon and to Antonio Guterres, focusing on the potential crisis of this climate change situation, would we even be close to where we are today to understanding how grave the situation is and looking at some of the alternatives as to what we need to do to preserve this planet? I think there's no question the UN was a vital player in, the, in, in organizing the, the, the planet around the issue of, of we have to address climate change. And going back to the Rio Environmental Conference back in the 1970s, you know, the UN has been very much on top of this issue and, and very much a, a, a kind of catalyst to bring, bring states together to do something about it. And, and I think we, 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 we sometimes underestimate the uh, power of this organization in, in a, a kind of promoting issues that otherwise be left on the, on, on the side of the road. And, and this is a very good um, example of where the UN has played a, a vital role in, in um, you know, bringing to the attention of, of the world's population something that is, um, addresses the very survival of us as a species. Uh, and again, that's part of this same mandate that have prevent the outbreak of uh, our, our third world war, which would also threaten the uh, existence of, of our species. So the UN is, is a vital player in, in keeping us as a, a, a world that is in which human beings can survive. Mm -hmm. 
You're, you're absolutely right. And that, that's another point that the UN touches every person's life on this planet in a positive way. And most of us don't realize that the UN is involved not only in peacekeeping or trying to prevent wars or helping refugees or helping uh, maternal and child health care uh, programs, that type of thing, but they also, the UN agencies help to move mail, weather information, aircraft, ships, and international space. These, these are vital roles that the UN plays, but most of us don't hear about it because they're doing a good job and why why have good news? I guess the media wouldn't want to focus on that. You, you deal with a lot of people. What are some of the major myths that you hear about the United Nations? I know I mentioned one world government a minute ago, which is not true. It's, it's not a wealthy institution, far from it. It's always begging for more money to try to help with the programs that it has. But what, what are some of the myths you hear? Well, I think one of the myths that, that is, is somehow that the UN is irrelevant. You know, it's got a big organization here in New York City, where I am right now. And uh, it has, a, you know, traveling ambassadors around the world. But gee, what, what, what role does it really play? Well, in fact, if you look at the past 77 years of UN's existence, uh, it, it has probably settled over between 30 and 40 local conflicts around the globe, which if the UN had not been involved, could have spun out of control any one of them and become enlarged into a, a wider war. And in fact, maybe into a world, third world war. Uh, I'm just to take an example, El Salvador, Cambodia, or Mar Martinique, uh, Mo Mozambique, I mean, uh, you know, Angola, uh, it, you can go on and on. Uh, uh, so Cyprus is another one. Uh, the point being that the UN provides peacekeeping forces, you mentioned that earlier, in a way that helps dampen down the conflict. But it also provides um, negotiators, a team that can go in and use diplomacy to bring parties together. Uh, nobody else can do that. There's no other central uh, global organization that has all these resources that can be brought br to bear on these uh, terrible crises. And I, so that to me is probably the one criticism I take most offense at because people simply brush the UN aside as, as well, you know, it's nice to have around, but gee, all it is is a goody goody group that, you know, promotes happiness and peace and it doesn't really do anything beyond that. What a waste of money. And that's just absolutely not true at all. And doesn't even come close to what the organization is all about. Right. And it has been said before, if the UN didn't exist, we'd have to recreate it tomorrow or even today, because we have to have a body that brings the countries of the world together to work on these problems of climate change. And there's no loss of sovereignty there. That's another myth that's out there that uh, you hear pushed by some of the right-wing um, talking heads, and which that there, we see that one of the problems we have in this world is that the media, generally speaking, and I put all of it in the same boat, mainstream media, uh, far right-wing extremists, left-wing extremists, whatever, they so seldom talk about the UN except to criticize it. And they put out so much misinformation, disinformation, and outright nonsense at times. And uh, that kind of leads me into our last minute or so, which is not really fair, but leads into what has been the coverage of the Russian invasion in Ukraine and how abysmal it's been by 
outfits like Fox, by One American News, by these folks who are just some of the talking heads are actually pulling for the Russians to win whatever is going to happen in Ukraine. How do you, how do you perceive that? I think it's very disappointing in the sense that what what that invasion uh, by Russia in Ukraine reflects is the divisions in various different countries. Now, in, in, the, in the United States, it reflects a division within the Re Republican Party itself, some of which uh, believes that Putin is not a bad guy and should be allowed to take over Ukraine. And the other part of the Republican Party that is traditionally anti-Russian because of the whole Soviet experience of the last number of decades. Whereas in the Democratic Party right now, uh, there's almost unanimous uh, support for President Biden and his opposition to what's going on. I think what, what any invasion does is it reflects the internal domestic dynamics of any country around the world. And I think you're seeing that even in China right now, which on the one hand believes in the sovereignty of nations, but on the other hand, it's got a kind of loose, uh, you know, link to Russia, which was established right after the Olympic Games. And I think all of that in, in some means that uh, the, the media itself becomes, promotes each part of those di different factions of views, and it gives a very splintered picture of what's really going on in the world. And I think that is very, very much a problem for dealing with what are, in this case, clear matters of aggression by uh, one country into another. Well, Steve Schlesinger, these are very complex issues, as all of them are, to be quite honest. But this Ukrainian situation is going to be even more problematic. And of course, we will look to organizations like the United Nations, NATO, the European Union, to try to help us work through this. And it's so critical that we do that. We heard a siren about 10 minutes into the show, and we decided to leave that in there because that really exemplifies what's going on in Ukraine right now and in many other areas of the world that we don't hear about where there, there's fighting going on, people are suffering, people are dying. But Steve Schlesinger, I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Thank you very much. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television. Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program the opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives.